Good evening and welcome to this COVID-19 edition of the Christ Church uh, Catechesis video series. Um, it's very good to have you with us this evening. Um, we are continuing on in the Catechism to speak about prayer. Tonight we're going to speak um, not only about the types of prayer, but also about uh, corporate worship and uh, liturgy as well. And I know that for many people coming into Anglicanism or any uh, Catholic tradition for the first time, this is always a very interesting thing for them to learn about. And so uh, I know that it'll be, I hope it'll be uh, of help to you tonight. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God of peace, who has taught us that in returning and rest we shall be saved, in quietness and in confidence shall be our strength. By the might of your Spirit, lift us, we pray, to your presence, where we may be still and know that you are God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So having uh, spent a little bit of time about last week praying, talking about praying through Holy Scripture, uh, we now turn to talking about uh, prayer uh, in, in a formal way. Um, and so we're turning to question 233 in the Catechism. This is on page 83 of the New Catechism, uh, just published by Crossway. And in fact, I just received a, a large shipment of these. So if you want one, uh, I can deliver it to your house. Just send me or Stevie an email and we'll be sure to get you one. Question 233. Are there different ways to pray? Yes, prayer can be private or public, liturgical or extemporaneous, spoken or silent. Um, there are wide varieties of prayer in the Christian tradition, and uh, prayer has always, uh, even in, in when you read the Old Testament, there have been multiple ways of praying, both uh, private and public um, uh, people have, God's people have always had both a private and a public praying life. They've always had both a liturgical praying life and an extemporaneous praying life. They've also had um, times of listening to God, of being silent, of not using words at all, of simply sitting uh, in the presence of God, being still and knowing uh, the Lord's presence. Um, as we talk through this, it's very important to note uh, that many people, uh, many Christians experience uh, more of one part of prayer or more of another. Uh, many Christians experience uh, that they are, uh, that they have certain um, uh, temperaments in prayer or certain gifts in prayer. And this is very normal. Uh, I've known many people through the years who, who say, you know, I just don't seem to be able to pray like he does or like she does. And they say, well, how do you pray? And then, then they'll tell me, I say, that sounds wonderful. You should keep doing that. Uh, this, is, this is to say that uh, many people have, there are wide varieties of gifts in prayer, and uh, we need to understand that. Um, but as we outline these various forms of prayer, what we're trying to do is give is give a sense of what exactly is out there and what uh, and how Christians pray. What types of prayer are in the Lord's Prayer? The Lord's Prayer includes praise, petition, intercession, and confession to God. So we see these uh, these five ways of prayer or four ways of prayer um, in these in these in the Lord's Prayer itself. I, I always think of five because uh, intercession is often divided into two: intercession and supplication. Uh, but but here it's only one: intercession, praise, petition, intercession, and confession to God. Um, all of these factor in. You know, praise, hallowed be Thy name, petition, give. Give us this day our daily bread. Intercession, or thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Uh, intercession is more, give us this day our daily bread. And confession, uh, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us or who trespass against us. 
Um, all of these show us what it means to have a balanced life of prayer. And this is an important thing because uh, very often people will find that they're very good at intercession, very good at petition, uh, somewhat good at confession, and never even think about praise and prayer. Or some are all about praising God, uh, but spend very little time in confession of sin. Or spend very little time in pra- very a great deal of time in praising God, but very little time in intercession. So what is praise? Oh, well, let me let me go back just a bit. This is to say that uh, that a balanced life of prayer will include all of these um, in one way or another. A balanced prayer life means that we're praying a bit of this, a bit of that, a bit of this, a bit of that, and we have a uh, a, a very uh, evenly balanced life of prayer. This might be something like uh, if you have a home stereo and you have several speakers in your surround sound system and uh, you have to keep them balanced. If you hear too much from the right and not enough from the left, then you've got to turn that balance knob to the center again. If you get too much from the back and not enough from the front, uh, then you've got to turn that fader just a bit. Maybe it's like your car stereo. But this is to say that, that, uh, that the life of prayer uh, can often become imbalanced. And uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about how we can bring that prayer life back into balance. Although I would say just uh, from the start that uh, one of the things that we have as Anglicans is the daily office to help us balance this prayer, this life of prayer. We, we listen uh, to Holy Scripture prayerfully. We praise God, especially through the canticles. Uh, we make petitions for, uh, for civic leaders, public leaders, national leaders. Uh, we make intercession for the world. We even have time for free intercession and extemporaneous intercession. And then there's also, uh, at the beginning of morning prayer and evening prayer, time for confession as well. So question 235, what is praise? In praise, I glorify and adore God for His holiness his sovereign rule over all, and his salvation given in Jesus Christ. Um, To praise uh, means that we speak of God's greatness, his goodness, his gifts, uh, the joy of knowing him. Uh, We glorify uh, and adore God. Um, God is uh, is the lover uh, par excellence. Um, he, he is, and I love what St. Augustine says about, about God, being um, a great uh, uh, seductive artist of seduction uh, who seduces us um, into loving him. Um, we often speak of God as not in this way. We'd never speak of God as, as a seductor. And yet, uh, what we should know is that God is, is calling us into uh, a love affair, um, that's what the story of Scripture is. It's the story of God in, in a love affair with His people, um, calling them into relationship with Himself, and finally ending in this wonderful uh, marriage scene in the New Jerusalem. Um, so God's people will always praise Him. They will always speak well of Him. They will always adore Him. Um, you know, very often in, in a marriage, things go awry because uh, one or the other spouse is not offering, and usually it's both, not offering enough uh, praise and words of adoration, words of, of, of uh, joy uh, to the other. Not saying things like, I love you. Not saying things like, I really do care for you. And so uh, sometimes these things that are, that are often assumed need to be said still. And so in uh, praise, we do that. What is petition? 
In petition, I make requests to God on my own behalf for his provision and protection. In petition, in essence, we pray for ourselves. This is often called um, uh, supplication. Uh, In petition, what we're simply doing is we're saying to God, I have these needs uh, to be filled. I have all of these things that I I desire or want or, um, or, or am asking for. And, uh, and the words of Scripture are, are quite clear that um, we ought to be anxious about nothing, Paul says, but in everything make our requests known to God. Jesus says uh, in Matthew chapter 7 uh, that uh, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give to those who ask Him? I make requests to God on my own behalf, for, both, for two things, for provision and for protection. I love how the catechism will often uh, dally a bit in, uh, in alliteration. Provision and protection. Uh, provision uh, is put simply in the Lord's Prayer, daily bread. Protection uh, is, is to pray that God will keep us safe from all peril, uh, from, from danger, from uh, sickness, from, uh, from enemies. All of these things are, are needed in life. Um, you know, many people today struggle with feeling uh, a bit like, uh, or well, at least until lately, have felt uh, very much like, like, uh, like they're invincible. Uh, yet the Christian always prays for God's protection, uh, believing that we're not invincible, that anything can happen. Um, we, can, we can die at any moment. We can meet dangers at any moment. And so we ask God for protection. What is intercession? In intercession, I make requests to God on behalf of others, the church and the world. Intercession is a very powerful uh, work of God's people in every place and in every age. Um, I'm reminded as we read through, as we've been reading through uh, uh, Exodus in uh, in um, the daily office, particularly in morning prayer, uh, of how powerful an intercessor can be before God. Moses interceding regularly for the people, um, standing between God and the people, and asking God to bless the people rather than curse them. Um, and, and what does God do? Well, God blesses the people. God brings them into this land of, of, uh, of flowing with milk and honey. Um, he's good to them. Um, we can bring uh, God's goodness to the people that are close to us in our lives and even people we don't know. Um, in our family, we regularly pray for people we don't know who we've, we've simply been asked by others to pray for. Um, I'm reminded as we think about intercession, a few days ago we read of, of uh, the, uh, the four men uh, who in the Gospel of Mark lower uh, their paralytic friend through the roof of the house where Jesus was uh, for him to heal them. And Jesus sees their faith, not the faith of the paralytic, but the faith of these men. And he not only heals this man, but first what he does is he forgives his sins. And so that leads us to confession. Um, we can intercede, and I want to say this before we get into confession, we can intercede for others uh, that God would draw them to repentance and would forgive them of their sin. So question 238, what is confession? In confession, I acknowledge my sins and repentance before God and receive his forgiveness. Uh, confession is often as simple as saying, I did it. That was me. It wasn't someone else. It wasn't uh, another identity. It wasn't uh, another personality. It was me. I did it. To both acknowledge the sins that we've committed, 
but also to do so in repentance. What does it mean to uh, to acknowledge sin in repentance? Well, it means uh, not simply to say, well, yeah, that was me, I did that, uh, I did it, um, and, you know, I'll probably do it again. But, but instead to say something like this, and, and not just say it, but, but, but mean it uh, out of the heart um, to say something like this. I'm, I've done things my own way, and it's been an utter failure. Um, I'm turning, Lord, towards your ways. Would you please show me that way? Would you help me in that way? Um, would, you, would you give me the gift of a penitent heart before you? Um, and it's on that basis to ask for forgiveness. In the Lord's Prayer, the prayer is simple. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. There's supposed to be a simultaneous action of the Lord forgiving us and of us forgiving those who sin against us. Um, that is a mark of repentance that we begin to live a life of forgiveness. If we uh, simply receive God's forgiveness and, and then we go about and hold grudges and all the rest, then, then it's, a, it's to say that, um, that we, we've not really uh, taken to heart the quality or the quantity of our forgiveness that we've received uh, in God. What types of prayer are not included in the Lord's Prayer? Other types of prayer are thanksgiving, by which I give thanks to God for His providential goodness and answers to my prayers, and oblation, by which I offer to Him all that I am and all that I do. Let's break this down a little bit. Uh, thanksgiving is not included in the Lord's Prayer, neither is uh, oblation as a way of prayer. And so I want to talk just a little bit about these. Uh, by thanksgiving, we simply give thanks to God for His providential goodness and answers to our prayers. Um, many people through the years that I've known, and I've done this myself, uh, will keep a prayer journal and they'll write down what they're interceding for, and then they'll then they'll say, "Was this answered?" And when it's answered, they they mark it and they turn it over into a kind of Thanksgiving column where they can begin to give thanks for uh, for uh, the answers to these prayers. We pray that God would provide for us. To pray for daily bread means we're praying for daily provision for our needs. And note, we're not praying for daily ribeye steak. We're praying for the most basic sustenance, that of bread. In oblation, what we do is we offer all that we are and all that we do to God. This is a, a kind of surrender that takes place. The Christian life ought to be summed up, in a sense, as one of surrender to the triune God, handing over control of ourselves and control of our lives to God's power and providence. Um, an oblation is a gift of self. Um, Paul uh, entreats the church, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And we've been talking about this in the, in the Bible study of uh, 1 Peter, how Peter calls upon the people to offer this acceptable sacrifice of their lives before God. An oblation is a powerful thing, an oblation of the self. Well, how can this happen? Um, in the Christian tradition, this often happens uh, by Christians simply... Uh, beginning their day uh, by consecrating themselves over uh, to God uh, for His use and for His provision. Uh, maybe that looks like something like, as soon as your feet hit the floor when you wake up, or maybe when you roll over to bed to look at your phone, uh, you think, no, 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 first I have to make, uh, make the sign of the cross and, and, uh, and offer this day to God's glory. 
Maybe it's like this. You have a, uh, you have a, a, a test that you're studying for, or you have, a, well, let's say in this day, you've got a Zoom call that's, that's stressful. Uh, to, to offer that call, offer that uh, study, offer whatever it is you're about to do over to God. Uh, in our house, we keep uh, a crucifix over the sink in the kitchen, and it's to remind us that the work that we do there is a holy work that should be offered to God and not simply offered uh, to the people in our family, which it is, but uh, that the, the, the kitchen is a, a workroom and it's a place where God can meet us as we serve. So this is a very important thing, and, and to offer this oblation is really important. Any action, um, anything that we do in life can become a prayer. And this is a great thing of good news uh, for Christians. It's a great thing for anyone, really, to be able to say, listen, anything you do in your life can become a prayer to God. Um, and you can offer it in prayer. Uh, one of the most uh, famous examples of this is is Brother Lawrence, who was a, a French, uh, well, it's hard to call him a monk. Uh, he was more like a lackey at a monastery, and uh, and he was a brother, a lay brother, and um, he he would he was set because he wasn't very intelligent. Uh, he was set to wash dishes, and he did this all day, um, many hours of the day, and people would come from far and wide to watch him do the dishes because. Uh, he he washed the dishes of the monastery in total prayer and consecration of himself to God. And he was very clumsy, and he would occasionally drop a dish, and he would say, "You know, I'm sorry, Lord, for breaking the dish. Would you please help me with the next one?" <laughs> and so, so this is a, a, an example of how we can pray. And he, it's a wonderful book by Brother Lawrence um, called "Practicing the Presence of God," and something I commend to you. With what attitude should you pray? I should pray with humility, love, and ready openness to hear and do God's will. Um, prayer is, again, a, a, an act of surrender to God, surrender to His will, surrender to not only doing His will, but hearing it more closely. And that requires uh, a posture, a kind of uh, attitude, if you will, of humility, uh, by which we, we, we humble ourselves, we quiet our own pride, um, and indeed we try to abolish pride. We ask God to, to set our pride aside. We say, I don't exactly know what to do here. Um, I don't know how to do this best. And we ask God to show us. In love, uh, love is... Uh, is not just to say that we have great affection for God. That's not what we're meaning here. What we mean is that we actually set aside our own good and our own desires and our own hopes and our own wants uh, to focus on God Himself. Um, this is another place where maybe maybe an analogy for marriage is is, is helpful. Uh, but but uh, but it's to say, listen to this. You know, if you have if you have a husband who who, who, who says, you know, of course, honey, absolutely I love you. And she says, but you don't listen to me. Um, you, do, you do whatever you want. When I talk to you, you, you zone out. Um, you don't listen to me. I need you to listen to me. Um, listening to me is how, how you show me that you love me. And of course, if he doesn't listen, if he doesn't uh, tune his ears to her, uh, then, then she will start to doubt his love, and rightly so. 
But this ready openness to the will of God, ready openness to hearing from God, is the attitude in which we should pray. Um, all too often people say, well, I'm going to go and I'm going to pray for this. I must, you know, I'm going to pray, I'm going to get this. Well, no, you, 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 you say, I'm going, to, I'm going to set aside all that ambition, all that desire, and simply, simply ask God uh, to, to give me of himself. Um, and, and not to tell him what he will do, and not to, uh, not to dictate, um, but to, to, in an attitude, attitude of humility and openness, and, and above all else, I would say, of love, uh, to make our prayers known to God. What prayers should you learn as part of your rule of prayer? After learning the Lord's Prayer, I should next aim to learn certain psalms, and prayers from the daily office. These prayers will ground me in the Christian tradition of prayer and teach me how to pray in my own words. Um, this is a very good advice. Uh, if you're going to start anywhere in memorizing prayers, uh, the Psalms are a great place to start. You can even memorize uh, Psalm 23, Psalm 51, uh, Psalm 95. We we say that just about every day in morning prayer when it's uh, when when it's uh, when it, and and it's just a wonderful way to start the day. Psalm 100, same thing. Um, and so you can you can easily memorize these things without even knowing you're doing it. Um, the daily office also includes lengthy quotations from Scripture. Uh, lately in morning prayer, we've been praying uh, uh, from Isaiah, uh, that wonderful uh, uh, prayer, seek the Lord will he wills to be found, uh, is that wonderful uh, thing, you know, as rain and snow fall from the heavens and return not again, but water the earth, giving life and bringing forth growth, bread for sowing, or, uh, uh, seed for sowing and bread for eating, so is my word that goes forth from my mouth. It will not return from me empty, but it will accomplish that which I have pro- promised, and, and it will accomplish that for which I sent it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm roughing it through the, through the memorization, but you said this so many times in different versions that, uh, that it just has become uh, part of me. It can come right out at any moment. These prayers ground you. Now, grounding is a kind of humility. Um, one cannot be grounded in anything if they're prideful. One cannot be grounded in anything if they think that uh, their life is perfectly good as it is. Um, this helps to ground us. It helps to uh, uh, bring us into a humble interaction with the Christian tradition of prayer. And through this, we learn, uh, we're taught how to pray in our own words. This has been often the problem, if I can just uh, have a bit of an aside, with how Christians have been taught to pray through the centuries, uh, especially as of late. Um, Christians are simply told, or, or new Christians are told, hey, you know, for prayer, just just talk to God like he's your friend. Uh, and, and, and people are saying, how do I do that? And, and so but what we should be reminded of, there's a wonderful tradition of teaching prayer, of teaching the life of prayer, uh, especially to new Christians. Um, and, uh, and it's by grounding ourselves in this tradition, which is not only uh, this tradition which stretches back to the time of the apostles, but is rooted in Holy Scripture and all of it, the Old and the New Testaments, um, we can learn from the church how to pray. And this is very, very, very important. Um, Every uh, mystic, every great mystic of the Christian tradition always had at their disposal some kind of prayer manual, some kind of prayer guide uh, that they would rely upon. I'm reminded of stories of St. Teresa of Avila that she would, she was a great mystic, you know, wonderful, ecstatic visions, etc. But she would always carry a little, uh, a little prayer book into uh, her prayer, into her prayers with her. 
um, never needing it, uh, but always just for the comfort that she could turn to the prayers of the church if she ran out of her own. Um, and this is a wonderful gift. I'm uh, uh, reminded of many people through the years who've told me, you know, uh, I didn't really, uh, you know, I had my own life of prayer, and then someone gave me this thing called a prayer book, and, and all of a sudden these prayers started to find their way into my life. They started to find their way into me even. Uh, this is a great, a great gift. And it's through that that we learn to pray in our own words. Um, children learn to pray by praying what others have taught them. We see this all the time. Question 242. What should you remember when prayers seem to go unanswered? I should be certain that God always hears my prayers and answers them by his wisdom in his own time and manner for my good and for his glory. Um, we should remember this regularly, that God uh, does not... Uh, does not um, uh, sort of wall up against uh, prayers, but always hears them and always answers them, in fact. Um, but it's, it's in his wisdom that he does it. Um, and in his own time, and in his own manner, it's always for my good and for his glory. Um, we should be reminded that there are times when we're asking for something uh, that it might not be good for us to have yet. Or that it might not be good for us to have, Period. Um, and so the answer to that is, no, I'm not going to give you that. Um, you, you may be a parent, and you may have had your children come up to you and ask you, Dad, would, can I have this? And, and the answer is, of course not. <laughs> um, uh, and the answer is, well, why? And the answer is, because it would be bad for you. Um, it wouldn't be good for you to have this. It wouldn't be good for you or for the family or for your friends. Um, and, and so it's in my wisdom that I hear the prayer, I hear the, the request, but it's also in my love that I don't answer it as well uh, with an affirmative. I answer it with no. Um, it's also the case that God often answers prayers in his own way, and his own way can be better than our way way better than our way. For my good and for His glory. Uh, for God, our good and His glory are not distinct things. They're the same. He glories in giving good gifts to His children, and we should glory in those gifts and give Him glory for them. Question 243. How should you pray in times of suffering? I should pray trusting in the sufficiency of God's grace and in joyful assurance that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. This is a quotation uh, from Romans chapter 5 and it's the first uh, uh, reference given there after that answer. But I think it's really important that we note this, that Christians almost stand alone outside of Judaism in teaching that suffering has immense meaning. That suffering can, in fact, be the most important, one of the most important tools at God's disposal uh, for, for uh, bringing us to maturity and to virtue. Now, does that mean that God inflicts suffering on us? Well, I don't want to really get into that. Uh, certainly, it's the case that God allows suffering to be visited upon us, um, and, uh, and it is... Um, um, part of living in a sinful world that we will suffer, in a world uh, confused by sin and death, uh, that we will suffer. 
But we should pray in times of suffering, believing that God's grace is enough, and also assured, joyfully assured, as the Catechism puts it, uh, that suffering produces endurance. Um, and let me break down each one of these. I'll have a little mini Bible study on Romans 5 right now. But, but listen, uh, you, everyone in this, in this world has known someone who suffered a great deal, and it's built in them endurance. Um, I remember uh, uh, meeting, I was having my, I used to have my shoes shined on a regular basis um, it, when living in California. And, uh, and I was in the shoe shop one day and, and it was a very you know, kind of inexpensive thing to do. And the guy did a wonderful job and uh, shined up my shoes really well. And, and I got to know him through the years. But one day sitting next to me in the, in the seat next to me was this guy. And, uh, and, I, and I, I got to talking to him, and, he, and I said, well, uh, and he, he mentioned that he'd been in China. And I said, well, you know, what were you in China for? And he said, well, I was running marathons. And, and I said, marathons? And he said, yes, 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 I'm, I'm an extreme marathoner. And he basically told me that he would run uh, sometimes as many as two marathons in a day. And what he was doing was running these marathons in the deserts of the world. So he was in the Gobi Desert running these marathons. And he said that, and I asked him, well, you know, it must have been very painful. He said, at times, excruciatingly painful. But I found that as I uh, endured this, uh, this pain, my endurance was built up for it. And so he said that through the years of doing this, he's, he's gained immense endurance. I mean, obviously so, to be able to run uh, two uh, marathons in a day, and I think that happens two or three times a day, two or three times a week, um, to be able to run like that um, and, and to be able to endure it in a desert is an amazing thing. But it's that suffering that produces the endurance. And, and any runner can tell you this, that uh, if they run a marathon, when you get to a certain point, the, the pain is simply telling you, give up, give up, give up, give up, give up, give up. This isn't worth it. Uh, you know, you're going to die. And what, you, what do you have to say? Well, you have to say, I'm not going to die. I'm going to keep going. And what happens? Will you endure? Um, even more than just athletic kinds of suffering, people who've experienced incredible loss, incredible pain, uh, the misery of rejection, the misery of, of, of feeling out of place constantly, constantly feeling like the world is falling apart around you. And uh, what does that do? Well, if, if used rightly, it can produce endurance. It can bring about in us a long-term uh, commitment. When endurance grows up, um, it produces what we call character. Um, character is a, is a very um, neglected thing these days. We don't really measure somebody by their character, and we probably should. Um, character means uh, the ability uh, to, to do what's right, um, the ability to be uh, an integrated person uh, who's not one thing with these people and another with another group of people, or uh, one thing when alone and another one with someone else. Um, it also uh, makes someone uh, uh, strong uh, morally, able to do the right thing um, no matter what the cost. Well, what does this produce for us? Well, it produces hope. And hope in the Christian is a Christian theological virtue. It's, it's the theological virtue of hope. And uh, hope uh, does not mean believing that everything's going to be all right in the end although that certainly is part of it, 
Uh, but it means this. It means that we're not tossed around uh, when storms come. We're not thrown from, from side to side. We're not tossed like a ship in the waves when, when hard things come. Um, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews calls hope a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And this is a wonderful uh, word for us to be able to know that, uh, that uh, we are able to be grounded in God as Christians to the extent that we won't be tossed about, um, but we'll live uh, by hope. And all of those things work together to produce this wonderful uh, theological virtue of hope. When we say it's a theological virtue, and I want to say this as, as an aside, it means that we, we actually can't produce it. It's theological in that it comes from God. Um, we can't create it. It doesn't exist in us by nature. It has to be given to us. Um, so hope is, is this wonderful gift of God, uh, and it is rooted in, uh, in turning our hopes upon God. Let's turn uh, for a bit uh, to, this, to these questions of corporate worship. I'm going to really go through uh, uh, the first three questions, and then we'll pick up again uh, in two weeks uh, because we're going to take a break for Easter, uh, for Easter Sunday and the night before. But let's just go through these three, and maybe I can say a little bit about Holy Week at the end. Question 244, what is liturgy? Liturgy is an established pattern or form for the worship of God by God's people. The liturgy leads us in the remembrance of God's mighty acts and unites us in grateful response. Liturgy actually comes from the Greek word leiturgia, uh, ergos in the Greek meaning, meaning work, uh, leos meaning people. Uh, it means work of or on behalf of the people. Um, in uh, in um, in the ancient world, uh, Laetorgia was the idea of almost something like public works. You know, a city might have the public works department. This is a direct uh, lineage from that word Laetorgia. It's, it's work done on behalf of the public. It's work they can't do. For the Romans, this meant building aqueducts and roads and things like that. For the Christian, it meant uh, lifting up the world uh, in prayer as a priestly people uh, set upon uh, uh, standing uh, before God uh, with the people on our hearts and in our minds as we pray. Um, Christians have always prayed for the conversion of sinners. We've always prayed uh, that God would call people uh, to receive His gospel. And, uh, and the liturgy builds this. The liturgy teaches us this. Um, Jesus says of, of, the, of, of the Eucharist, uh, the bread that I shall give is my flesh for the life of the world. And in fact, we learn Christian liturgy from Jesus Christ and his work on behalf of the world. Um, in fact, we join him in that work um, when we worship and when we enter into Christian liturgy. So it's important to say that um, it's not only the work of the people that's done by the people of God. Um, so I want you to get that right. Liturgy is not something that I do for you um, uh, alone, although that's, that's certainly true, and in that way it is work done on behalf of the people. But it's also work you do as well. 
Um, we're in this wild time of live streaming the celebration of the Eucharist. And it can seem that, uh, that the priests are simply doing this on behalf of the people. And in a sense, that's exactly what's going on. But we would lose something if we lost the understanding that the, the people are gathered together to participate in this liturgy, um, to work in this liturgy as God's people. Um, so I want to remind you of that. If you're, if you're live streaming, participate in the worship. Um, uh, kneel when we kneel. Um, uh, speak through the liturgy. Hold tight uh, to your prayer book and, and go through it with us. Question 245. Why do Anglicans worship with a structured liturgy? Anglicans worship with a structured liturgy because it embodies biblical patterns of worship, fosters reverence and love for God, deepens faith in Jesus Christ, and is in continuity with the practices of Israel and the early church. If you look uh, to, for instance, the Psalms, the Psalms are Israel's prayer book. It gives them prayers to pray, and not only them, but us now who pray through the Psalms. This is to say that God gives us not our words to pray to Him, but His words to repeat to Him. Uh, prayer is a gift, and he gives it to us. Um, so these structured liturgies uh, certainly embody biblical patterns. Um, if you've been reading along in morning prayer, you've been reading uh, Exodus and Leviticus. Uh, we just started in Leviticus, and it's been very fun. Uh, but you see these these prescribed forms of prayer that are given to the people, uh, very um, highly ritualized. Uh, forms of prayer, highly ritual, uh, ritualized forms of worship. And uh, often uh, today, in, in today's uh, uh, Christian milieu, so to say, in the United States, we have this odd thing where people are highly against, they say, I'm so against ritual. Um, and yet, we read about ritual constantly through the Old Testament, and God has not rejected ritual at all. Um, God loves these rituals. Why? Because they form us so deeply. Um, they, they make us a, a people of, of worship, of reverence, of love for God. They deepen our faith. Um, it's a wonderful thing to watch people engage in, in, the Christian, in, in liturgy, traditional liturgy, liturgy in particular, uh, because it deepens that faith so wonderfully. Um, if, if people are only given to worship in the way they feel most comfortable, then they will stay comfortable. But if they enter into a worship that challenges them, uh, that that lays down wisdom and and uh, and a vision uh, for what maturity looks like, for instance, uh, then then we will see that and respond to it. Um, this is certainly in continuity with Israel, but I want to say as well, it's in continuity of the ancient church. The ancient church uh, entered into liturgy uh, in a very deep way, in a regular way, and uh, that's something that I want to encourage you in, is to know that, and, and in fact study it, that the ancient church uh, was very committed uh, to liturgy, to public forms of praying, public forms of worshiping, and in fact through the centuries became more so, and I think most people know that, uh, but but they had their reasons for that, and uh, Anglicans are, are uh, not unique among um, uh, the churches uh, uh, which, which, uh, which um, came out of the Reformation, um, although Anglicanism wasn't founded in the Reformation, it was founded well before that, but, uh, but, but, but which reformed Christian worship in that century. 
um, is that we maintained uh, a significant amount of uh, traditional Christian liturgy, although translated into English um, and, and throughout Anglicanism translated into a myriad of other languages as well. But, but it's to say that uh, we, uh, we worship in these prescribed patterns because they've been given for a long, long time, and so we continue in them. Now, there are often um, uh, negative responses to these uh, these uh, structured liturgies, this uh, prescribed words to say and pray. And uh, the Catechism anticipates this. And so we turn to question 246. Does structured liturgy inhibit sincere and vibrant worship? No. A structured liturgy provides sincere worshipers biblical language and, that, and forms that train our hearts for worship. Let me say that again so I can get the sense right. A structured liturgy provides sincere worshipers biblical language and forms that train our hearts for worship. Liturgy enables us to worship God joyfully and with one voice. So let's answer that in both parts. Structured liturgy, meaning uh, liturgy with structure underlying it uh, that tells the liturgy where it's going to go, what's going to happen next. Um, one of the things that, that people have told me, especially at Christ Church, where most people came out of um, some kind of uh, free and evangelical tradition of Christianity, is that they love not having to guess what's going to happen when they come in the church on a Sunday. They pretty much know after a while, oh, well, this is just what we do every Sunday. Um, it provides these sincere worshipers of God with deep biblical language for their prayers, uh, and their hearts are not simply following their whims in prayer or evaluating what about this service do I like and what about it don't I like, although it's hard to keep people from doing that. Uh, but it trains us. It really does. I mean, I've been, um, I've been a, a Christian, as a, well, tomorrow, 40 years. Um, and I've grown up with the words of this liturgy in my ears. Um, and I will say, it never gets old, it never gets boring, it never gets, truly, it never gets repetitive. I find that if, if I'm feeling bored with it, or inhibited by it, that's a problem in me more than anything else. And it's by returning to the liturgy, returning to these words, returning to these patterns, returning to this structure, that I find immense help in prayer. And so I want to, want to encourage you in that. I've known many people uh, who have uh, come into a liturgical church and they've, and they've tried and tried and they say after about four or five weeks, I just don't get it. I just simply don't get it. And, and all I'll say to them is this, give it another two months. And after two months, it always happens and it never fails. Always happens. Wow, they say, I'm blown away by how much this, uh, this way of praying has become mine. Um, how these prayers have become my prayers. It takes some time. It definitely takes some time to get used to it, to feel at ease with it. Uh, but it's very worthwhile. The second half of that is really important, and we're going to close here. Liturgy enables us to worship God joyfully and with one voice. 
Um, if we're always wondering what's going to come next, then, then uh, we can often be a little bit uh, concerned that potentially we're going to uh, get uh, uh, um, uh, confused or uh, lost or, uh, or something's going to happen that we're not quite sure we agree with. Um, it's also the case that uh, if we don't know what's going to be there, then we don't anticipate it with joy. Um, I know for so many people uh, to not know that they're going to be entering into the liturgies of Holy Week has been a source of great sadness during this time of quarantine and social distancing and and uh, self-isolation. Um, they, they feel sad about this loss of of a a um, of a thing in Holy Week in particular that they have grown to love and and joyfully anticipate because they're going to join together with this parish family with one voice uh, and and go through this week um, and and they and now they 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 know that that's not going to happen um, in the ways that it, that it has in the past it will still happen but it's going to be very different um, this is this is a crushing blow to someone uh, who has come to love and adore uh, this way of of life and prayer, who's come to love and uh, joyfully love uh, this time. Um, so I want to encourage you in that uh, that uh, that if you're live streaming Holy Week and uh, and uh, and the plans for that have been put out in an email that you've received, um, and if you're doing this, um, try to do as much of it as you can. Uh, but also recognize that uh, that that it's going to fall short of what uh, what the ideal is, um, and uh, it's a very strange thing, and um, and it's very uh, it's very odd to even be saying it. But but there's always going to be next year. <laughs> it sounds like Cubs fan. It's all there's always next year. Um, but I want to say as well that uh, that. Liturgy is not simply something that we engage in inside this church building. It's something that we do throughout life. Um, we are always engaging in liturgies. Um, it's the liturgy of, of a husband saying goodbye to his wife when he leaves the home, or, or her saying, I love you on a regular basis, or of a... Um, or of the rituals, you know, like in our house, we bless our children before they go to bed. We have the same blessing. Ella has hers, I have mine. We bless these children as they go to bed. Um, and if and if there was a night when that didn't happen, it would be strange and weird and stressful and 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 odd. Probably a rather joyless night if we ever got to that point. It's happened a few times, I can remember. But but uh, but it's so. Uh, built into us that we have these we have these rituals that we do regularly, and, and what it does, and I want to leave you with this. It actually builds character, and it trains up. Remember, like last week, that tomato trellis. It it tells us which way is up, and it trains us in the way that we need to go. And this is a powerful thing because. Um, uh, if if we're left to our own devices and to in fact um, uh, write meaning into the world rather than receive it as a gift, um, then we very much become our own gods, and we wind up actually uh, without without liturgy and without what it gives, we actually wind up worshiping ourselves. 
Um, and this is a huge danger in the contemporary church. It's a gigantic danger as we live in this age of uh, home worship and live-streamed worship and all the rest uh, for people to sort of double down on, this is me, this is who I am, um, I'm worshiping my own way. This is why I, I would have to say that, uh, that the, the forms of liturgy which we as Anglicans have in the prayer book are, have, have never had um, a greater importance than they have at times like these, um, where people are opening their prayer books at home, uh, they're, they're committing themselves in humility and love to these prayers, and the prayers are becoming theirs. Uh, but what we see through this is that this, the, this liturgical life of worship is a gift to them rather than something of their own making. Um, the problem with, uh, with, uh, making up our own liturgies is that they very, very easily devolve into a kind of idolatry. Um, if we make it up as we go along, uh, we wind up and really and truly not so much worshiping the living God as we wind up worshiping, worshiping something else. Uh, so for instance, the form itself. Or we wind up just simply in a really brutal way worshiping ourselves and our own desires and our own whims. Um, so as we go through this Holy Week, I hope that what you'll do is, is instead of trying to fight it, <laughs> I, I've, I've given up trying to fight how things are going to be at Holy Week uh, because there's nothing I can do about it. Um, surrender to it. Give yourself over to it. And through this act of giving yourself over to what this week will be like, and if it's different for you, then so be it. If it's entirely new for you and you wonder, well, what's it like when they're actually there at Christ Church? Um, uh, uh, simply, again, give yourself over to it. Because it give, what, what happens when you do this is you're giving yourself over to God uh, that he may teach you and that he may teach you to love him. This is, this is faith in a nutshell. To put our minds and our hearts and our wills and our bodies in God's hands. This happens powerfully through the liturgy. It happened particularly through the liturgies of Holy Week. And I hope that it will be a great blessing to you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.